So, we've been doing a series through the Minor Prophets. This is our sixth week uh, looking at the Minor Prophets. And, and, and I just want to remind us that they are called the Minor Prophets, uh, not because they are minor as in less important, but because they are minor as in, sh- as in they are shorter. These are not insignificant people in the Bible just because they are called minor. And, and, and this week we get to the halfway stage. There's 12 minor prophets who we're looking at. Um, I forgot to put which one it was up on Facebook this week. And so some of you, if you weren't here a few weeks back, may have read Jonah. Be honest, who read Jonah? Okay, sorry. Gemma's going to kill me. We're not doing Jonah this morning. We are doing Micah this morning because we had a visiting speaker who looked at Jonah a few weeks ago. So we took it slightly out of sync. And, and, and this morning we come to the halfway stage. We're looking at Micah. And the very first thing that I kind of want to say is that even before we delve into the, into the prophet Micah, and we are literally just going to dive straight into it this morning, that I want to remind us that this isn't the defunct word of God. If, if you're not used to coming to church or if you're only just finding out about it, then you'll sometimes hear us refer to the, to the part of the Bible that the minor prophets are in as the Old Testament. But just at the very beginning this morning, I just want to kind of, it's a halfway rallying cry and the reminder and the rallying call is this. The Old Testament is not old in the way that we sometimes think of old. So sometimes people would say to me, oh, I'm too old to do that. Or I'm too old to do the other. Or I've got old shoes, so I need to buy new ones. Or I've got an old car, so I need to buy a new one. And so when when the word Old Testament is used, sometimes you might think, well, actually, that's the old one. We now need a new one. But actually, the truth of it is this. All scripture is God-breathed. That's what Paul writes to Timothy. And when Paul writes it to Timothy in the New Testament, he doesn't mean the New Testament. Because the New Testament is still being put together. He means the Older Testament. The Older Testament. Not the old and defunct. Just the slightly older in age. We have, we're blessed here at Southside with all generations. The central part of our vision statement is to transform every generation And so we don't have old members at Southside and young members. We just have older and younger. And in the same way, as every single one of you is valuable and loved and precious in this church family, so is the Older Testament. And, and right at the beginning of, of Micah's prophecy, and what we need to remember is that when, when the prophets spoke, they weren't like sat there speaking and writing it all down at the same time. So in a sense, what we have here are the prophets' sermon notes. Um, and, and, and it isn't a word for word of what they said in the same way as I would suggest what we have when we read Jesus' words isn't a word for word what Jesus said. Actually, Jesus said much more than that. The prophet said much more than we actually have written down. But what we have is kind of like their annotated sermon notes, their bullet points, what they would have put up on a PowerPoint if PowerPoint was available. And, and, and as we rush to get into the meat of the message, so to speak, it would be really easy for us to skim over the opening verses where Micah says who he is etc but I just want to read from verse 2 because Micah says who he is he says where he's from and then in verse 2 of chapter 1 you should have had time to find Micah by now it says this hear O peoples all of you listen O earth and all who are in it that the sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple 
And I want to suggest that there is actually something really important, even in that opening or that second verse of this, of this prophecy, and, and, and which we would so readily at times skip over as we launch to try and find out what is the central teaching theme of this of this letter. Because yes, Micah was delivering this message, the message of Micah. If you haven't read it, then I really would encourage you, go away and read it over the course of the next week. But, but the, the message of Micah made sense in Jerusalem and Samaria and Israel and Judah nearly 3,000 years ago now. Nearly 3,000 years since this message, about 2,750 years ago. And this message made sense or would have been understandable might be the better way of thinking about it, because for some of them it would be like, well, no, that is absolutely senseless. But if people 2,750 years ago in Israel and Judah were willing to listen to God, and that's the key thing here, if they were willing to listen, this message made sense to them. This message would have in some way resonated in their lives. And yet... Micah in verse 2 says, Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it. This is a local and specific message. And yet it is also a universal, and yet I would want to say equally specific message. The problems that Micah confronts, therefore, are not simply problems connected with 750 BC, but by the power of the Holy Spirit working in Micah and the power of the Holy Spirit moving amongst us, he is going to address problems that have absolute truth and which can cut right to the heart of where we find ourselves in 2017. And with that in mind, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at two interrelated and connected sins, two areas of problems. Sin, if, if, if you're just getting used to the whole church thing and sin sounds like a slightly old-fashioned word, which I realize it does unless you play rugby because in rugby you have a sin bin, but that's pretty much the only place I know of in, in, in our, no, Ice hockey as well. Sorry, I stand corrected. Unless you play rugby or ice hockey, you will probably not generally come into connection with the word sin. But sin is basically anything that cuts us off from God. That is the biblical definition of sin. It's when we do something out with what God wants for us and which cuts us off from him. And we're going we're gonna to think about two areas of, uh, of the life of Israel and Judah. And I'm going to use Israel and Judah into, you know, at the same time. Sometimes I'll say Israel, sometimes Judah sometimes both. But Israel in this, this week, this is for both parts. Remember, we've talked about the northern and the southern kingdoms this week. We're just talking about Israel as a whole, predominantly uh, Judah, but I'm just going to call them Israel. And we're going to think about two problems in the life of Israel, two areas of sin, interconnected areas of sin in the life of Israel. And then we're going to think about a message of hope that permeates throughout Micah. If you've read it, you'll have seen that this message of hope permeates throughout. But the first problem that we see that there was in the life of Israel was this, that their worship, 
The worship of Israel had become a perversion of the worship that honored God and that he longs for in his people. I'm going to read from chapter 1. Micah writes this, verse 3 and following. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and he treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All of this... It's because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? And then over into chapter 3, this is what Micah says. Her leaders, speaking of Israel and Judah, her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look For the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. And, and, and without understanding those words, without really knowing what, what it is that those words mean, we might think, well, actually, that isn't too big of a deal. That doesn't really have too much to say to us. But I've kind of paraphrased what I think Micah is saying here. And basically what he's saying is, you see your capital cities. Because remember um, that Samaria was the capital city of the north and Jerusalem was the capital city in the south. You see your two capital cities, the place where, the, where culture is formed. If you think about cities, they are the places that form culture. So if you, you know, when we moved down to air, we were incredibly cool because we moved from Glasgow. And then like we end up in air and like no offense to those of you who grow up here, but it's just not as cool. And although it kind of is actually, but it's cool like about a year after it's cool in the city because, you know, and I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not as well, but, but sit. Cities are places that culture emanates from. What is going on in a city catches on in other places. The big bushy beards started in cities, and now I'm just trying to. Steve Meehan has finally caught on. Um, so, and and what and what Micah is basically saying here is, you guys are so proud of your capital. You are so proud of these places that you see as defi- as setting the tone for your nations. You are so proud of these places that you see as the worship centrals within the life of your nations, especially in the case of Jerusalem. And yet, cuttingly, God through Micah says, Jerusalem and Samaria are high places. And as I say, it might not actually mean that much to you if you you don't grasp what that meant. When they said high places, what they meant is a high place. That was a place that was set up to worship idols. So things called Asherah poles were put up or or altars were made on high places. You know, because, you know, as as you know, or as you may know, uh, sometimes going up a mountain, it's seen as 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 an opportunity to go on a kind of a retreat towards God. And so places for idols would be set up on high places. That's where people would go to encounter gods. And and, and so what God through Micah is saying to Israel and Judah is that actually your idols are the places that you see as being absolutely central in your life and culture. The places that your culture resonates out from is actually the place where you are falling furthest away from me. The word of God through Micah is you have missed the point entirely. If you think that Jerusalem in particular, but Samaria as well, are places that are drawing you towards God, your centers, the places that you 
see as being absolutely fundamental to who you are as a people and a worshipping people are actually the places that are driving you away. These places that you see as being central for your worship are actually places where the heart of worship has been completely missed. How? How was this the case in the life of Israel and Judah? Well, that's our second area of sin. First area of sin. They idolized Jerusalem. They idolized Samaria. They idolized the success that came out of those places. And then the second thing is this. They were unjust and disinterested in the plight of the poor, the needy, the less well-connected, the less influential. In chapter 2, Micah says this, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Chapter 3, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. And then perhaps the the best known part of Micah, the the verses that many of you may recall, even if you can't remember anything else that it says in Micah, comes from chapter 6. And it really links these two problems together. It says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. For many people throughout history, I would suggest probably for many people today, and I would probably, and I would fear knowing something of my own life that not only for myself, but many of us here, there can be a tendency in our lives to make our worship of God, our worship in, in the case of Israel of Yahweh, our worship of Jesus, a tick in the box exercise. For many of us, we can come to worship. We can come to kind of do the things that we think please God. We could have a daily quiet time or meet in our connect groups or come to a gathering like this on a Sunday or whenever else it might happen during the course of the week. And because we have done those things, because we can say, yes, I've done that. I've spent some time with Jesus. Yes, I've done that. I've come to church. Yes, I've done that. I've gone to my connect group, whatever it might happen to be. And then we somehow allow that to give us some kind of like deistic approval to whatever else we want to do with our lives. Uh, uh, but, 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 the, but what uh, Micah is saying is that that is completely wrong. 
the people of Israel and Judah and us so often divorce our worship from how we live. There is this false distinction that is set up between what we do on a Sunday or what we do in a midweek or what we do at 7 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock at night. And we say, yep, I've ticked the God box and now I'm going to get on with the rest of my life. But the problem is that God has never wanted that for his people. God has never wanted to have a people who say, well, this area is my faith area and then that is the rest of my life. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, we read of the fact that God absolutely explicitly put in place for Israel at the same time as he, as he taught them how to worship him. At the same time as that, God also said to Israel, and this is how you are to live. And this is one of the things that he said. At the end of every three years, this is God's instructions to Israel. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites, the Levites were the religious leaders in Israel. They didn't have their own land. They didn't kind of make money or anything like that. And he says, so that the Levites and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. Over into the newer testament. And James, who was Jesus' brother, writes this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. To look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And Jesus himself says, when he, when he is asked, what, what is the great, greatest commandment? And he says, love God and love people. And then if you remember... The guy who asked him that question, we read it in Luke's gospel, says, you know, he wants to try and justify himself. And so he says, okay, but who is my neighbor? Who's this neighbor who I'm meant to love? And Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. In other words, your neighbor is whoever is in need. And then Jesus says of this command to love God and love neighbor, neighbor being whoever is in need, by saying this, that these two commandments are more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When I was first looking at Micah, and I read that bit about the high places, about Jerusalem and Samaria being high places, my first thought and how I kind of started to apply it into my own life was that Probably that, 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 that something in the gathered worship of um, Israel and Judah was actually uh, beca- had become an idol. So it was almost, so I was imagining how we might apply this. We might say, well, the band have become an idol, and so Southside has become our idol because of something we do. Or the preacher has become an idol. Ali, what are you laughing at? Wow. <laughs> I've lost my flow now. Yeah, or, or, or how we sit, or when we meet, or anything like that. I, I thought that when, G, that when God through Micah said, Samaria is, is Israel's high place, Jerusalem is Judah's high place, I thought that it was actually talking about something that they did in their worship. That was my first thought. But then as I continued to read through it, as I continued to pray, as I continued to study, I realized actually this book tells us very little about their worship as in kind of like their religious acts of worship. It doesn't tell us what songs they sung. It doesn't tell us how often they went to the places. It doesn't tell us whether they used the right cattle or the right offerings or anything like that. So I want to suggest that actually they were doing the religious bit right 
And that the problem with their worship was not what they did when they gathered to do the kind of, to do the, to do this sort of thing. The problem with their worship was how it impacted on their lives when they went away from there. The acts of worship that took place in Samaria, the acts of worship that took place in Israel, the acts of worship that took place in Jerusalem and in Judah. The problem wasn't actually with those acts of worship. The problem was with the disconnected lives that flowed out of those times as demonstrated primarily in how they treated the most needy and the poor amongst them. One of the writers that I read this week summed it up perfectly, I think, when he said that Israel and Judah had managed to perfect the perennial heresy of compartmentalizing their religious beliefs and practices from their daily occupations and beliefs. They did the religious stuff and then they got on with life as normal. J.B. Phillips, who was a, a great translator of the Bible in the, in the last century, uh, I think he's even more cutting because he says this, that uh, when it came to tick, putting ticks in the religious boxes, that the way in which Israel and Judah are then responding to the poor and the needy demonstrates that rather than knowing God, they have an utterly wrong idea of who God is. What we need to remember, Israel is God's chosen people and yet as we reflect on their life it can even be said of them they have an utterly wrong idea of who God is that is how far they were missing the mark by I want to read you some statistics just now um there are, there are now more people in poverty in the UK than there have been for almost 20 years. And there are a million more than there were at the beginning of the decade. Um, the next quote is to do with persistent poverty. Persistent poverty uh, is defined as a relative low income in the current year and at least two of the three preceding years. So that's the definition for persistent poverty. And here's the, here's the statistic. In a 2016 article, it was reported from the Office for National Statistics that 3.9 million people in the UK were in persistent poverty in 2014. That figure rose to 4.6 million in 2015. And as I say, the actual poverty numbers are over 10 million. That's talking about persistent poverty, which doesn't mean someone who's in poverty this month, but might get out of it next month. That's talking about somebody who's been in poverty this year year and two out of the last three years. Almost three in ten persistently poor individuals were materially deprived, which means that they couldn't afford four or more essential items in 2015, such as a car, a week-long annual holiday away from home, or a meal with meat, chicken, fish, or a vegetarian equivalent, equivalent every other day. It's predicted that by 2021, the child poverty rate in the UK is going to be 25%. And then I'm going to read this. There are 6,976 council areas in Scotland. According to the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation, you could live in areas of South Ayrshire, an area that I'm not going to name, but you know, we all, many of us live in them. Um, 
but it isn't about the individual areas necessarily. But you could live in certain areas and be in the top few hundred, some even higher places to live in Scotland based on housing, health statistics, and education figures. But then just a mile or two down the road, in this town, in this county, in some cases, a literal stone's throw from where we are worshipping this morning. And you could be in the bottom 100, even the bottom 50 places. Out of 6,976, you could be in the bottom 50 as far as I could throw a stone in this country for deprivation, income, and employment. But don't worry about it, because we got Jesus, eh? And that's Micah's point. They were saying, don't worry about it, we've got God. Don't worry about the poor who are getting poorer. Don't worry about those who are getting exploited because we have God. And so often, I believe that that's exactly what the Western church looks like. Don't worry about it. We've got Jesus. And yet the message of Micah, loud and clear, is this. That you have Jesus when Jesus' character is being worked out in you. That you know God when the character of the God whose heart is for justice is being worked out more and more. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we are going to be perfect. But it means that we cannot settle for those sorts of things. That is Micah in a nutshell. You might think, I might think, we might think that we're ticking some kind of religious veneer on our lives. But if that religious veneer isn't being worked out in how we treat the poorest amongst us, that like Israel and Judah, disaster is looming. Because worship of the God of justice, worship of the God who brings good news for the poor, both the literal poor and the spiritual poor. Let's not just pretend that this is about spiritual poverty. A genuine encounter with the God of justice will see us growing in his likeness as our lives reflect his priorities. It's Christmas next month. (laughs) Who's excited? Who can't quite believe it? Wee man's excited down the front. (laughs) Woo, fantastic. (laughs) I am kind of excited as well. But in Micah, we find one of the clearest prophecies. If you've read it this week, you'll know it. In Micah, we find one of the clearest prophecies about Jesus that we find in the, in the Bible. And it is specifically related to his birth. This is what it says in chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. Israel had failed. When Mike is speaking, Israel had failed. Their lives were not lived under the whole rule of God. They had compartmentalized their faith. And as a result, they were going to be carried off into exile. That happens very soon. And yet, 
God's promise. I said there is a message of hope that permeates throughout Micah. And that message of hope is this. That that righteous punishment, that exile which they deserved would not be the end. Because in a town called Bethlehem, a baby is going to be born. That baby is going to grow up. He himself is going to take the punishment for our sin. He himself is not only going to take the punishment, but he is going to take death away. He is going to defeat death. He is going to take sin away. He's going to show us how to live. There's so much that Jesus does in his life, death, and resurrection. I couldn't tell it all of you if we had a thousand million years to do it, let alone just a, a few minutes here on a Sunday morning. And that then Jesus ascends into heaven and pours out the Holy Spirit to continue transforming his people. And what's more, this same child who Micah Micah prophesies about there in chapter 5, this same child is the one who is not only seated in heaven now praying for each and every one of us. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Jesus is praying for you now. That's amazing. But he's not only sat there praying for you, waiting to come back. He's looking forward to a day when his kingdom is going to be fully realized. In Micah chapter 4, Micah says this. If you like Les Mis, you'll, you'll love this bit. Swords will be, I couldn't stop singing Les Mis all week because of this. Swords will be beaten into plowshares. Nation will not take up sword against nation or train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree and no one will make them afraid. People in Israel were afraid. People in Judah were afraid. But Jesus is going to bring back a day. Micah is looking forward to a day when the Bethlehem baby is going to bring full and perfect Shalom, peace, and when there is no longer going to be any fear for anybody. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. Isn't that amazing? A day is coming when those who are in poverty, when those who are marginalized, when those who are downtrodden, who are pushed down by a system that is set up to make them fail, a day is coming in Jesus when that is not going to happen anymore. Amen? Because the kingdom of God, listen, this is so, so important for us to grasp. The kingdom of God, sorry, I shouldn't just say listen at that point. Hopefully you've been listening for the last few minutes as well. The kingdom of God is about more than simply saving souls. The kingdom of God is about more than just saving people into eternity. The kingdom of God is about living out God's righteousness, God's justice, God's mercy in the here and now. And if you don't get that, what Micah says to you is you don't. Get God. J.B. Phillips, again, to quote him, he says this, Micah was red hot with righteous indignation because he saw the evils of society not only as the heartless exploitation of the weak by the strong, but as a failure to grasp the true meaning of religion. The true meaning of faith. We rely wholly And fully on the grace of God. My hope, I love that song. My hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And yet true worship of the Savior. True worship of the Savior will lead to looking like the Savior. Because saving grace gives birth to transformation 
of individuals and of societies. Christmas is coming and we're going to celebrate the memorial of Jesus' birth. We're going to celebrate it here at Southside. We're going to celebrate it with Christians in there. We're probably going to spend some money. We're probably going to eat some food, have some parties, whatever it is going to look like. And I am not for a moment saying that that is wrong. Celebration is both important, but celebration is also biblical. I really do believe that celebration, good celebration, is biblical. But what is not biblical, what is not Christian, as Micah has made so clear in this book, is that we can come along and do a few religious things, put a religious veneer onto Christmas or a religious veneer onto life and use that as our justification for greed or as our justification for forgetting that whilst many of us will be well-fed, warm, comfortable, and surrounded by friends, there are many, even many in this very town in which we live, who will be cold, hungry, lonely, downtrodden, broken. Because if we take the religious box and then forget about that, if we take the religious box and do nothing to help those people, then we can't actually describe ourselves as true worshippers. And we can't describe ourselves as true followers. And I am so challenged. And I don't even know that I can do what it is that Micah is talking about. I don't know if I'm prepared to live the sort of life that we see reflected to us in these writings. And not only in these. Please, please, please don't do that thing of saying, oh, that's the Old Testament. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. All of this testifies to Jesus. All of this helps us to know him more. All of this shows us more the character of Christ and his priorities for the world today. There's an old song I tried to Google it. I must have maybe even remembered it from before I was a Christian when I was a kid. And I couldn't find it, but it says something like this. Um, a kingdom of justice and wonderful praise. A kingdom where Jesus declares us a praise. Where his holy people establish abroad the kingdom of God. That is what we're called to do. May we allow Holy Spirit 
to shine a light on our lives, to show us whether our worship is ticking the box veneer or whether we're willing to try together in the power of that same spirit, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead to live lives that out of the grace of God and for his glory will make a difference in the world.